Welcome to the Kind Mess Podcast. Um, you're here again with Jad and Michael. And we're joined today by Steph Lowe from the founder of The Natural Nutritionist and author of The Real Food Athlete, um, host of the Health, Happiness and Humankind podcast. Um, I've known Steph uh, for 12 years. We've just established before um, <laughs> going on air. And um, from her early days of studying nutrition, I've sort of watched her grow into, you know, this amazing sort of entrepreneur running her own business and helping to inspire others. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So Steph, maybe um, tell us to begin with a little bit about what you do and, and how you help your clients. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. So as you mentioned, I'm the founder of The Natural Nutritionist. It's really a hub for celebrating the importance of real food. So I launched TNN, as we call her or it, (laughs) in 2011 after returning to um, complete my postgrad studies in nutrition. And, you know, in 2011, the food space was really different. This is pre-real food revolution. We're still talking heavy, low-fat days. And, you know, I essentially became quite a myth buster. Mm. You know, back then it was about, you know, cholesterol and sadly still is because that's a myth that's never seeming to die. (laughs) But I set myself, um, you know, quite the big goal of dispelling the confusion because we do see so much confusion in the food space. And so over the years I've, you know, established TNN as the health hub, but I have, you know, quite a online presence now with a virtual clinic so that myself and my practitioners can help people one-on-one, those that are wanting personalized support with, you know, it might be a real food lifestyle, could be weight loss, it could be preconception or postpartum nutrition, certainly could be microbiome health. And these are the niches that we really love to work in. And um, we help people one-on-one with advice and testing and supplements and a whole host of um support protocols and it's just it's my dream job like you know as we'll talk over the episode today it really is you know my passion but also I know what I meant to be here to to do so I feel very lucky as cliche as it sounds it's um it's an absolute honor to be able to call this work (laughs) yeah that's awesome I mean it sounds like I mean that's when you know you're sort of in flow in life really isn't it when you can kind of connect your purpose and your, your career and stuff for sure. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a huge part of health that we uh, probably don't acknowledge enough. Steph, I'm interested greatly in your work coming from a background in the fitness industry myself and remembering all those years when we were supposed to be scared of eggs and essentially looking at your work in preparation for this discussion It seems like we've got a couple of crossovers in that you're about optimizing metabolisms. That's, would that be fair to say that's, that's one of the things. I guess in this way with this podcast, we're trying to maybe, maybe look at optimizing 
consciousness, which sounds a little dramatic. So I'm curious in terms of your career, where do you feel like consciousness fits in within the role of the nutrition, within the traditional view of, of fitness and wellness? Yeah, it's a really good question because I think it's um, probably seen as quite separate, maybe industries or modalities, whereas, you know, when you practice holistically, you can't neglect one or the other and you certainly don't look at the body as separate organ systems like we tended to do in, say, Western medicine. So I love that question because, you know, the first thing comes to mind is like it's a concept of mindful eating that I think is probably a little bit um, maybe, I don't know, considered woo-woo by some people because of how it's discussed maybe on social media, for example. But one example that um, comes up for a lot or comes up for me a lot in clinic is we do a lot of work on, you know, metabolic health, but quite a lot of gut health work. And I can't tell you the number of times someone's come to me with, you know, major irritable bowel syndrome or digestive symptoms that have been going on for sometimes 10 or 20 years. And the reason why they haven't resolved their symptoms is because they haven't looked at their nervous system. So if we look at the role of the sympathetic nervous system versus the parasympathetic nervous system, we know that we need to be in that parasympathetic nervous system to rest and digest. But most of us live in that sympathetic fight or flight. And, you know, quite a common symptom is that we get bloating or IBS or a degree of gastrointestinal symptoms. Yet when I get my clients to practice some some mindful eating or some, you know, some breath work before eating, slow them down, teach them some of the basics of digestion, all of that resolves. And it's not it's not sexy, it's not an expensive supplement, it's not a, you know, an 8-week or a 12-week program or a 30-day challenge, but you know, I think integrating the two can be really really powerful for lots of reasons but you know certainly in that digestive space that one that's one that we see quite a lot. Oh, look that's that's very interesting because a recurring theme of this podcast and this and discussions that we have is that we're gradually shifting societally from human beings to kind of human doings. Even that example of what you're saying, it's becoming a rare thing to sort of sit down and be present when we eat food because we're thinking about where we need to be or what we've got to do. I'm curious, you mentioned mindfulness and we love that word here. How have you seen mindfulness impact your career and has that changed as you've moved through your career? Mm. I think um, certainly being able to teach that is really powerful because I agree with you. I think that we've kind of gotten so busy that we've forgotten to look after ourselves and then we wonder why we're having health issues or mental health issues or symptoms or whatever it might be. And, um, you know, being able to teach that and, and see such powerful changes off fairly basic strategies is is really incredible. But then, like, I think from a... Um, a personal point of view, I've worked myself to burnout. <laughs> uh, I'm the first to put my hand up and say I've learned the hard way, right? This is back in the day when I was probably, you know, still working in a full-time job, starting my business, working late and not understanding the, the word boundaries at all and certainly not looking after myself as well as I do these days. And so being able to acknowledge the role of, um, I think, balance as well to to have 
you know, to be able to work really hard, but to have that self-care element, which I think needs to include some kind of mindfulness practice, what that looks like to everyone, I think can be really different. But that's certainly what allows me to, or has allowed me to grow my company. But certainly now as a mother, I mean, I could not survive toddler town without that, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) I was That was pretty much going to be the tone of my next question. I mean, I'm always curious with with parents and, and particularly parents with young children. I mean, what a paradigm shift. How have you seen, I guess, things like, compassion, self-compassion, mindfulness. How has that shifted now that you've, uh, you know, created a human? (laughs) Yeah, well, it's become a non-negotiable, even though I'm certainly guilty of dropping the ball. Um, I remember when Grace was, let me say, six to seven months old, just being so challenged by, you know, a little human learning to express themselves but not being able to communicate and just having to juggle everything while I was, you know, on my L plates as a new mum. And um, I was like, right, I've got to do something about this. And so I was, I obviously knew about meditation but had decided that my shavasana in yoga was enough and it certainly wasn't. So I was pretty desperate to try something else and I committed to doing 20 minutes of meditation twice Ooh. a day because there were a lot of people in the space that I looked up to that were doing that quite vocally and speaking a lot about the benefits. So, you know, I had nothing to lose and everything to gain. So I committed to that. And truthfully, within three days, the difference that I felt personally and what I noticed in my reaction or lack of reaction to Grace and was just so powerful that I was sold. And so It's such a good personal experience because everybody knows they should meditate, let's be honest, but many people are quite resistant or it falls off the list when we get busy, hand in the air, very guilty of that as well. But when you experience the difference, you're committed, right? And, you know, for for probably about a year, I didn't skip a beat. And we've recently moved states and life's been pretty crazy over the last eight weeks and I dropped the ball and I was starting to really notice the difference reactions with a toddler, you know, just the same old story and having to learn the lesson again. And so I'm now going through the process of sort of recommitting to that journey per se, because I know how I'm going to feel, but it's just about being reminded of the importance in, and whether it's your child or not, whether it's, you know, peak hour or road rage or what have you, like we need to have strategies, right? (laughs) And um, that, that really does make a huge difference for me, just making the time to sit still. Absolutely. And as a practitioner or an attempted practitioner of mindful parenting, I think, yeah, it resonates with me what you what you say. The space between stimulus and response seems to widen. <laughs> and you know, we can feel we can feel like we're getting a hands back on the wheel. Steph, you mentioned something before dropping the ball. As a professional dropper of balls, I'm kind of wondering if you don't mind me asking, in that moment of dropping the ball, how did you relate to yourself? Because I'm very bad at asking a question and then kind of giving too much information. But part of this podcast is obviously the mindfulness, but the, the compassion. And, you know, I was saying to my children only the other day, look, it's okay that you drop the ball, but it's how you do it and how you pick it up. So I'm curious if I can ask what was your experience like when you, in that instance, quote unquote, drop the ball? Well, firstly, how I was feeling was pretty horrible. Like I was feeling really 
um, reactive and quite sympathetic dominant, which is a a, a familiar feeling (laughs) for me historically and what I don't really like. Um, But I have this internal dialogue about um, starting again. But, you know, I think we live in a society where we're so used to like January 1st being that perfect start again. And if we haven't done it, oh, well, I have to wait till next year. And so I'm not doing that, right? I'm like, okay, so it doesn't matter that you've had maybe eight weeks of ball dropping. Start again. Just literally Mm. sit there and do your 20 minutes when you wake up first thing. And then for me, it just works to do it last thing as well, which I know is not, you know, maybe purely recommended by some schools. But however, you got to do what you got to do. But I'm pretty, I don't know, I think over the years I've been so good at being so hard on myself but I've really moved away from that line of thinking over, I guess, my journey again as, you know, with my own personal story but also as a practitioner that I'm quite good at just doing it because I remember the benefits and I think it's that foresight that I'm quite good at. And, you know, my client, like I was just thinking today, I had a, um, a consult with a potential new client and she said to me, like, basically, how do you do it? How are you so compliant? And I'd said to her that there's no magic pill, but I do apply foresight. I know how I'm going to feel if I do or do not do X. And so I know how I feel if I don't do meditation because I know how I'm going to be at 5 p.m. when things go pear-shaped with this little toddler. Or for clients, you know you know how you're going to, you're going, you know how you're going to feel if you eat that sugary snack at 3 or 4 o'clock. And that I think that's a sim- similar to what you were saying before, Mark, about the space between the stimulus and the response, we can think about that. We can create a bit of space and make a better choice. Mm. And I learned that years ago. I think it might be CBT with the stop sign. I was taught that by a therapist ages ago. And I still think about that to create the pause. Mm -hmm. What a huge skill set into itself in terms of just saying, listen, let's just pause before I get on the roller coaster. You know, I don't have to buy the ticket and I don't have to take the ride. Jad and I have often talked about it, how personally our experience of these practices is even just manufacturing that space or manufacturing that pause unto itself is an act of self-compassion. Because another thing that we constantly sort of interrogate here, Steph, on this podcast is that Thoughts aren't truth. They're not necessarily truth. But we're in a, we live in a society where we're kind of conditioned to believe that the rich, compelling narrative that uh, our Quentin Tarantino-like brains create is all truth, and therefore we have to be reactive <laughs> to that. Yeah, so I'm kind of just hearing, I'm hearing some serious skill sets there, Steph. Oh, let me tell you, I've done all the therapies and all the things. So you want to help I have some skills by age 37? <laughs> what I think also I heard in this, Steph, is, and, and maybe you can expand on that a little bit, uh, is a sense of compassion towards your future self. I know how I'm going to feel if I do the meditation. I'll feel better. My life will be a bit easier if I do. And if I don't, then I won't. So there's a, an element of compassion towards your future self. Um, you mentioned though in the past that you've been more hard on yourself. How did that kind of manifest and how have you kind of changed that, changed the way you kind of relate to your future self? You mentioned sort of envisaging the future, but is there kind of a a tone of inner dialogue that's different or the way you sort of talk to yourself? Has that changed over the years in any way? It's so different. It's so different. Like it's crazy to think. So I'm thinking age 21. Mm. 
So I've just admitted my age, by the way, I'm 36. So we're talking like obviously a decade and a half ago. I was horrible to myself. I don't think I knew that I had a choice Mm. about my thoughts. I never had been taught that. It's just not what I grew up in in terms of family environment or education. So I um, just accepted those dark thoughts and actually thought that was all I had. You know, I thought, especially when I used to have um, most people who have heard me speak before know about my disordered relationship with food and my weight challenges. And a lot of that led to, you know, my passion and, and developing the natural nutritionist. But, you know, back then I was just literally consumed by that and and the darkness and I didn't know there was a way out. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually don't, I know you guys talk about it a lot, but I just don't think people know this enough either. Like we need to be teaching this because we we mostly have negative thoughts and I'm sure you guys know the stats more than I do around the number of thoughts we have per day, and it's concerning that we do just accept it. And I, But I, th- I think also for me it was probably really powerful because it forced me to do the work, mm. whether it was, you know, cognitive behavioural therapy or acceptance and commitment therapy, which was probably the, the biggest um, style that resonated with me back in the days of The Happiness Trap, which is a book I still love to this day. And I was only thinking before we jumped on air that I'd like to read that again soon. <laughs> I I had a, a memory before, as I was writing some notes today, I was like, I think you actually introduced me to ACT, to Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Wow. And it was, fr- I'm pretty sure you lent me a CD or something of Russ Harris's or, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, this is all coming back to me as yeah. well. Yeah. And mm. it was actually going to his workshop that I discovered really mindfulness. That was the first time where mm. I really was like, oh, I don't have to listen to the, my thoughts. Like I can just like notice them and let them drift on by. That the was balloon. just re- yeah, the balloon. revolutionary. The balloon was life-changing to me back then. And I, I see it in my clients when they hear something like that for the first time. As they're understanding it, you can hear the light bulb or see the light bulb going off. And, you know, to us, um, to people who have probably practised that for a long time now, it's quite basic, but it's just so powerful. Mm. The red balloon, I love it. I still think about it all the time. I used to wear a hairband mm-hmm. around my wrist and I used to um, flick my wrist <laughs> and it would be when I got annoyed. Let's say it was something I used to teach Pilates, right, and people would, I don't know if I can swear, so I probably won't, but people would annoy me with something and I would find myself, my blood would start to boil. That's how it feels to me and I would start to get, you know, those unhelpful thoughts and you know I used to flick my wrist and I do it all the time or I used to click my fingers but then I gave away my secret and people knew when I was clicking my fingers that I had been like triggered so I couldn't do that anymore I had to find a new strategy so I was like the balloon and don't tell anyone about the balloon because then they will never know that you've been triggered or that they've triggered you (laughs) (laughs) I still click my fingers occasionally, though. I, I haven't lost it. It just happens automatically when I'm, you know, feeling a bit um, triggered is the word. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a wristband. Jad knew me when I had the, you know, Jad the self-compassionate wristbands. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the modality for that was to sort of connect with it and, and flip it over. It's one of those plastic ones you could turn over. Beautiful. 
and it was such an interesting thing to do. There's so many, there's so many um, interventions in in simple acts like that. And Steph, I like the way that you sort of alluded to the before that a lot of this is simplicity, but it's by no means uh, easy. So yeah, I'm I'm curious because. We do live in a society where it's probably more supported the idea that thoughts are truth and that there's not another way other than just sort of sitting with with the darkness. How have your strategies evolved over time? And yeah, we're obviously very curious about people's inner narrator. Has that shifted the voice or the tone of the inner narrator? Because I'm hearing that it was a pretty harsh, harsh critic when you were 21. Yeah, the the voice is so different and it's not something I've consciously thought about until you've asked the question, but I know from daily conversations that I have with other people who are very hard on themselves that, you know, I've lived that, but it's certainly not my reality anymore. I think in terms of the strategies, they're just ingrained now. Like I said to you before, I just randomly click my fingers, you know, this is literally 15 years later, right? So that to me is the art of practice. Like we talk about this with our children when they're learning to ride a bike, our dogs jab when we're teaching them new tricks. And, you know, like, again, I think we expect to be experts overnight, but I know that back then I was so committed to leaving the darkness or at least knowing how to get out at times um, that I forced myself. Like, you know, I, I remember I used to have to, force myself to think about something positive. And this this example is about eight years old because I know my nephew is eight years old. And when he was born, he was like, he is still a lot of my life. But at the time it was just like the most incredible thing in the world. My twin sister had a baby and he just brought me so much happiness and I'd be having a dark thought and I would literally force myself to start to think about my nephew because I knew it would change my internal state. But it was really forced. It was really, you know, rough. Whereas now I just do that automatically. But I think that's not um, complicated, but it's just practice. And it's like riding a bike or learning a language or brushing your teeth every night before you go to bed. We don't think about it now as adults, but back in the day we certainly had to and riding a bike can be messy and I think these strategies can be quite challenging at times, but I think the commitment is worth it, like the proof is in the pudding for a lot of us. Yeah, I think it's uh, you alluded to it earlier, Steph, when you can sort of sort of look at the experience or the the quote-unquote pain of the experience relative to the pain of moving towards change and kind of just doing the work and and realize that once once you get moving towards developing and implementing skill sets any change is difficult initially but far far more beneficial towards the end than sort of sitting with with difficulty potentially indefinitely i'm guessing yeah, who knows? I mean, I would have ended up in a very messy place for sure if I hadn't have committed to finding what was going to work for me. Like I said before, I tried lots of different things and many of the more sort of Western models didn't work for me. I still have a terrible memory of a psychologist that did not I did not gel with and that's not to say that it doesn't work for other people, but this was just my personal experience. And then I went sort of more East into, you know, life coaches and things like that. But um. Yeah, I think it's about developing those strategies and also continuing the work. Like I know this is going to be my work forever. 
I'm still going to have those thoughts or I'm still going to react to my daughter or I'm still going to be, you know, annoyed if someone rides up my bumper in traffic. Let me tell you, (laughs) I'm still going to be triggered. But I just think, um, yeah, the strategies are key and keeping them going like as a self-compassion or self-care strategy forever. Steph, um, one of the skill sets that sounds like you've been employing is is meditation as a practice. I noticed on your website that um, you, you're a meditation teacher, I think through Giant Mind or something. One Giant Mind. Yeah. So do you want yeah. to talk a little bit about that and how, how you approach meditation and the sort of style you employ and, and, and the benefits you've seen perhaps as well for your clients and for you personally? Yeah, absolutely. I guess with my own personal journey that – um, was where I was really inspired to learn more. Like initially when I um, started studying with One Giant Mind, it was actually for personal reasons. I wanted to, you know, understand more about the theory and, um, you know, learn more about the concept of meditation, which wasn't something I had looked at in great detail. Even though I have done my yoga teacher training, that was quite asana-based, so quite movement-based mm. initially. Um, so yeah, whilst I initially started studying for personal reasons, because I had my own personal experience, you know, I was really inspired that, you know, oh my God, this is what the world needs right now, <laughs> right? Like everybody needs to learn how to meditate, especially because it was around the time that COVID was starting and we could really see what was happening to the world, but you know, how that was impacting everyone on a different level. Mm. Um, so one giant mind, um, You know, now, whilst I'm not like literally taking meditation classes right at the moment, um, it's become a really powerful tool that I integrate into my nutrition business, like we were talking about earlier. Like, you know, that holistic approach has to encompass everything and um, it allows me to have, you know, I guess formal qualifications to be talking to my nutrition clients um, in more detail. Mm. And um, the style, like, I mean, it's it has a few different philosophies behind it, but in, in terms of it being um, the technique is, is using a mantra and, you know, the belief system is that it's a really beautiful place to start. So certainly, you know, there are many forms of meditation and um, the theory is that some should be learnt once you've got some baseline experience in understanding meditation and what that looks like. So it is a beautiful place for beginners and then, you know, many advanced people still use that practice, of course. But a mantra is a sound and that's what you're listening to and coming back to. And then obviously you notice your thoughts and you come back to the mantra and it's just that repetitive process while you're sitting still. Um, but it can be practiced anywhere, which is what we love about it. I think one of the myths around meditation is that you have to be, you know, cross-legged with incense and candles and etc. But, you know, that I think can be quite a barrier that we want, want to remove for those um, who already probably have enough barriers to getting started. So it's a really simple technique that can be practiced anywhere and, um, just the results. It's just so powerful. I mean, you two know firsthand, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners do too. It's just something that we really need to continue to teach the world so that we can change the trajectory that we're going on as a society. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find with your clients that that that, that is a well, – I certainly find with mine anyway, with um, particularly with gut health clients – 
that if that mindset's not sort of adjusted first, all of the kind of nutritional interventions and supplements and stuff can be really difficult to implement because there's there's this sort of stressful barrier that's interrupting people's ability to commit to that kind of routine and ritual. Have you found that sort of when people implement, you know, something like a meditation or mindfulness practice that it allows them to engage more then with your other, the other aspects of the modality, you know, of nutrition? Yeah, absolutely. I just wish they would, <laughs> I don't know, maybe believe that a bit more because <laughs> the concept of stress to some people is like, oh, yeah, like whatever. And um, I think certainly maybe more with the gut they can understand it when you talk about sympathetic versus parasympathetic and their digestion. But I think I do. I still do quite a bit of fat loss and I see every single day that stress is the biggest barrier, you know, cortisol levels and, and insulin, they're in, they're in fat storage and they still just want to be focused on calories or fats or macros and, like, we have just sort of – I think that's the way the weight loss industry has kind of trained us to mm, be, mm. that it's as simple as eating less and moving more. So we keep looking at the, that insular sort of equation and we don't have the capacity to see that it's much more than that. Mm, so mm. I think a client can learn that in time, don't get me wrong, but I feel like it takes a lot more to convince someone that meditation will help them lose weight potentially. <laughs> like it's a bit of a like a bigger jump, perhaps. Yeah. One of the things that I'm pontificating semi-regularly now is that the things we normalise, before I was being quite serious, as in we've we've shifted to human doings rather than human beings. That's what came up for me when you were talking before about some of your clients' attitudes. We've, we've sort of normalised being really stressed. We've therefore normalised a lot of the quite painful biological repercussions or implications of that. I can't tell you the amount of times in teaching people mindfulness that I've sort of gently interrogated those ideas. And, and it's somewhat tragic to see that we've maneuvered ourselves into a position, Steph, where, you know, we're unique mammals. We have the ability to be both the attacker with our thoughts and the attacked in terms of lower parts of our brain going, well, that's all happening now. What what are your thoughts on some of the some of the things that have been normalized and, and how did you how did you interrogate those ideas yourself and, and potentially intervene? Well I think the how are you oh, I'm so busy answer <laughs> was is a badge of honor, which I just really used to be that person. Like if you think about it, it's not it's really not a conducive answer if someone asks you how, how you are. But I think, and certainly when I was working myself to the bone, I would have been that person not really acknowledging the irony of it. But I think it's the culture that we live in. Whereas for me, it actually took maybe even the last couple of years to become a mother and to be forced to have to work less because <laughs> I'm trying to keep someone else alive and there's somebody that is saying mum, 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 mum like a 10,000 times a day. But I love it now. Like I'm 25 weeks pregnant and I'm probably working maybe three days a week and it's awesome. I really like this Steph that can work less and be okay with it, whereas that would have freaked me out three years ago. 
but you know, obviously my hand was forced, but I also think it's part of that process of really, you, you just can't be good at um, being a mum or being a practitioner if you're not looking after yourself. Like it's just impossible, right? And we meet so many people, I'm sure your clients, just like my clients, they've put themselves last on the list for too long and things are unraveling and sometimes really dramatically. And we tend to learn the hard way as humans, as have I a couple of times over. But um, I think we have to stop normalizing busyness. And I actually think COVID's been really good for that. A number of people that I've spoken to that have mentioned something along the lines of businesses becoming a lot more progressive because they've been forced to like maybe not let so many people in the office and now they're okay with people working from home and starting late because they've actually seen firsthand that the work is still being done. I'm loving hearing these stories and the work-life balance that I think you might be doing at at yourself at the moment, Jad, in terms of that reassessment that Mm. 2020 allowed us to do. And what a silver lining Mm. for a lot of people Mm. who probably were desperate for that, even though we had to go through a pandemic to, you know, to have this end result. I just think that's such an incredible outcome. Definitely. I think, you know, one of the most compassionate words we can often use for ourselves is is no, is to, to sort of say, no, I've got too much on. No, I can't go to that. Something I still am repeatedly learning. And yet COVID <laughs> for me and for many of my clients was a great time to take that step back and just be like, okay, what's the priorities? But it's amazing how quick old programming comes back. Like I'm myself, I'm in the midst of a position where I've just like suddenly overcommitted myself to so many things. And I'm like, uh oh, here I am again. But again, using a lot of these skill sets, I'm now able to take that step back quicker before I kind of reach the the point of total burnout and be like, oh, yeah, I can use that word. No, I can tell people, can I have a think about that and get back to you later about it rather than just saying yes to all the things. I think that 2021 is the year of no. So one of my very, very good friends is learning this at the moment <laughs> and he has sent me this meme. I hope it translates um, verbally, but it's a meme of Oprah. And she's like, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car, but we've turned into you get a no, you get a no, and you get a no. <laughs> totally. We're just giving out no's everywhere and we're both feeling so great about all our no's. And so now whenever something comes into my inbox and I'm like, no, nah, that doesn't feel right, I've got this visual image of Oprah in a red top going, no, no, no. <laughs> yes, yeah. And so I think hopefully everyone is doing the same. Like we're just simplifying because the flip side with life sort of coming back online is my clients are saying, oh, I'm starting to feel anxious again. I've got drop-off and pick-up and soccer and netball and I'm a taxi driver again and I'm really hating it because I had nine months of none of that. And so that's where I think boundaries come in because it's like, no, no, let's not go back to normal. Let's create a new normal. And anxiety should be a big enough trigger for you to notice that something's coming back on the schedule that's not you know, conducive or serving you. Couldn't agree more. There was a point where... I only knew what day it was by whether or not it was swimming lessons or (laughs) ballet, you know. It was like, oh, ballet, it must be Tuesday. Okay. You know, you can feel like you're just co-facilitating routines. So, yeah, that definitely resonates with me, Steph. So, you've hit upon a really interesting point there. COVID lets us stop and interrogate what we're doing in our processes Many people I've heard of, you know, my clients have sort of said, well, why was I putting on the grey suit and getting into the grey car and driving into the grey building? 
And I can sit at home and do all of that and sit in my Elmo jammy. My Ugg boots. You're I'm wearing totally. Ugg boots right now, guys. I've oh. worn them all day. Oh. I've been consulting since 9am. It's been brilliant. <laughs> I've got the thongs and the Transformers t-shirt. That's the you real me. Yeah. I love it. So, what's the legacy? You, you, you're talking about finding a new normal, Steph Lowe. What are your key points? What large servings of new normal that you're going to apply liberally to the coming decades? Well, I often think of that quote, if you want to know what your life will look like in the future, take a look at your life right now. Mm. Because if you're not happy with your life right now, you're going to keep doing that and it will be just the same in 10 years' time. It will. I mean, it's not going to be any different. So I then think about, all right, well, what are you going to do today? And it's life by design and that's a little bit cliche, but it's kind of become a bit of a term through like some friends of mine use because we're really big on setting that up because you've got the control, like just like you can control your thoughts, you can control what your day looks like and um, you have to make those changes now to make time for self-care, to make time for meditation or to make time to do your food prep or buy your groceries or bring yourself up the list of priorities to number one. And um, that's what I think it's about because you, you, you can't expect to feel good or have clarity of mind or experience great mental health if you're not looking after yourself. And we use different terms for it, but I like the self-compassion. And I do think, think of self-care because that's probably the most important thing, but we just haven't been taught that. And I think, I hope that for a lot of us that um, COVID has really, I guess, reiterated that. And that we at least have the awareness to watch when we're slipping back into those habits because we can all see it already happening. Practice compassion and just go back to reassessing your priorities and look at, okay, why did you feel so great in August? Or why did you feel so great in September? And what were you doing then? And let's bring some of those things back onto the schedule. Simple but not easy, right? Yeah. Well, I, I guess what I'm hearing from you, Steph, which I, I think I'm hoping and anticipating and pretty much strongly suspecting our our listeners, I keep saying viewers, our listeners will um, find valuable is I, I just intentionality comes comes through when I'm listening to you, Steph, in terms of it's about sort of saying and not being too heavy about it, but just saying, look, let's live with an intention. Let's let's apply intent to how we execute our times on this rock flying through space in these meat suits we call us. Yeah, I love that. You've always got the words, you know. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm explaining something and you like summarize it in one word, which is good because I do a lot of that subconsciously, I think. It's just what I've learned over the, you know, the decade and a half that we're talking about, whereas perhaps those tuning in like a word like that will give them a lot of clarity around how they're going to take that action. So I do love that from a practical standpoint as well. Let's set an intention and think about what we want our life to look like and how we want to feel. Yeah. Uh, look, I'd love to claim it was my idea, but I feel like I was given the vibe from your good self. And it, you're very kind about the way I speak. You'll notice Jad's face doesn't move. He's had enough of it. He's heard me bang on. But I do think... Th we haven't had any pop culture references so far, I don't think. I did say Quentin Tarantino. Ah, <laughs> uh, there you go. See? I told you, Steph, he just tunes out. <laughs> 
but look, it is a, it is an interesting thing using a mindfulness practice to perhaps interrogate things that we've established as normal. But I guess I guess this podcast also we do want to delve into the C word a little bit more. How is compassion towards yourself, Steph? What does that look like, and and sort of how's how's that shifted for you? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. I think I think it's about I don't even know if I can explain it properly. Just let me think about the the, the internal dialogue. I think is what is like anti compassion, right? Because Let's say you've dropped the ball and you berate yourself about it. Well, <clears throat> that's not helping anyone, right? But I think that's probably a bit of a default for us, to, for me to be just be pissed off at myself that I didn't meditate for January and December and be so annoyed that I broke my streak of twice a day, 20 minutes. But I actually I haven't had that thought, which is nice to reflect on <laughs> because I sure would have when I was 21 or probably even 25. And just to acknowledge the humanness because we're all human and pick the ball back up. No big deal. Yep. No big deal. It's just it's not starting again, but it's just picking the ball back up and putting it back into the schedule or onto the priority list. And even this conversation has motivated me and I think it's just the reminder of of what's important and what works for us to change the way we feel. I'm I'm interested in your process though, and and I feel like I've got a bit of a feeling for it. And and again, I think this is going to be very useful. You seem to have found a way where you're again sort of intent and process map focused, particularly when you drop the ball, which I find highly useful or would be highly useful because look, the default setting when we drop the ball is to kick the you know what out of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Jad and I have talked about many times a, a sort of a, a way of measuring self-compassion is to say, look, how would you speak to a friend when they drop mm-hmm. the ball as opposed to what would you say to yourself? Hmm. And, you know, gosh, I've gone through times in my life where, quite frankly, if I spoke to others as I spoke to myself, I'd be out of friends quickly or locked up, you know, need a good lawyer. So, it's an interesting thing that... <laughs> it's just the truth, kids. It's an interesting thing. You're you're talking about dropping the ball and a focus or perhaps a pattern interrupt for you is is sort of understanding this is skill sets. This is human. It was lovely to hear you mention common humanity before, which is one of the principles that we talk about on this show. I mean, is that is that an accurate sort of an observation? You you seem to be understanding of the destination. And it keeps you in a context of perhaps a kind of narrative on the journey. Mm. Yeah, I really like that. You, did you say process map? Yeah, I did. Mm. That's not a familiar term to me, but I like that thought process. I'm going to do some more research <laughs> around that term. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, process map is just a funny way of saying, look, uh, let's think about the rungs in the ladder. Let's think about the steps that we need to take. But is that accurate for yourself? You seem to be you seem to be able to look at the destination to give you context for the journey. Yeah, for sure. Which is the foresight com- like comment that I made before, and which is what I do in in the nutrition space and in that sort of compliance question that I often get asked. Um, but I also think the humanness is important because, as a nutritionist, um, 
Jad, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this too, but you're often put on a pedestal. People think that you are perfect, right? And so I really like to make it very bloody clear that I am not perfect, right? So I will share those stories with my clients because I'm equally as human. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I've meditated for 20 minutes twice a day for years if if that's not true. I would rather share my, you know, my ball dropping (laughs) so that we can all relate to that. Because, I mean, I eat really well, but I certainly don't eat perfectly. And I think the same thing applies in that self-compassion or mindfulness space because we don't, perfect doesn't exist. But we live in a world where I think it's sort of perpetuated by things like social media and the highlight reel. And I'm so anti that. And the older I get, the, the less time I have for any of that. So I think the, um, yeah, acknowledging the humanness is a huge part of it in all aspects of our life. Like if we also, you know, speak poorly to ourselves, well, move on, learn the lesson. Mm. I think, yeah, particularly as um, I resonate with what you're saying, Steph, particularly as health professionals, we and we, we hold us or other people also hold us to this high kind of standard. They put us on a pedestal and we can then do, do the same. And I've certainly felt over the years really, you know, um, yeah, like that I, sh- I should be eating, you know, cleaner or better or whatever and, um, you know, had a lot of self-pressure about that, especially in the early days of practicing as a naturopath. But these days, of, you know, I'm a lot more sort of open and honest with myself as well as with my clients about, you know, I used to think I should call myself like the naughty naturopath because, as you know, I've always had a <laughs> sweet tooth. I used to eat. <laughs> I remember how you used to eat. I don't know if it's changed much. but Oh, it's improved know. since then. It's improved. You're also the smartest then. person I know, so I'll forgive you for a little bit of sugar. <laughs> <laughs> the sugar, unfortunately, still needs a bit of work. I've even been thinking maybe I need to actually book in and see a nutritionist <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> but the one thing I, I only eat once a year, maybe twice a year if I'm pregnant, is sugar. Of course, there are many natural alternatives that I probably eat almost daily, but in terms of refined sugar, that is one habit I've well and truly kicked. <laughs> a, a non-negotiable wow. for you. Wow. Yeah. On my anniversary, I will give myself dessert. <laughs> Okay, well, I I crushed a Toblerone the other day, so I'm in an invalidation spiral right now. (laughs) What size are we talking? Just like a standard size or one of those Christmas ones that are just like a few kilos? It's one of those ones you could like smack a car door with and leave a dent. A weapon. (laughs) You can celebrate Christmas all year long. That's all I'm going to say about Toblerones that size. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love it. But, yeah, coming coming down off the pedestal, like, oh, my goodness. Life changing. <laughs> Steph, on, on your site, I notice one of the things you've written is contribution to human experience is where true growth and healing lies. Um, and I just wanted to ask a bit more about what you mean by that and, um, and how that relates perhaps to your kind of purpose or mission with the work you do. Yes. Thank you for asking because it goes back to what I was mentioning earlier about um, those sort of terms, purpose and passion. So when I was in my darkness – I can now see that a big part of that was because I wasn't contributing. I didn't really know why I was here. I was just waking up every day, sort of Groundhog Day, really. And I certainly didn't have much to look forward to or anything that felt like was contributing to happiness. So then all I could see was the dark. And You know, I did go through more of that sort of mental health side of things, but at the same time I was inspired to 
change what I was eating and very quickly learn the healing power of food. And so for me, that was the light bulb that I was like, okay, if this can change how I'm feeling, it's got to change how other people are feeling. So then I was really inspired to learn more and really motivated. And I had a reason to get out of bed in the morning and I did my postgrad and started the natural nutritionist. And literally it was like night and day in terms of that contribution for me was what was missing. So I now had a purpose to help others and to contribute to the world. And it was like the piece of the puzzle that was missing. Mm. And so often when I speak to clients who like maybe hate their job or there's a, a big piece of their life that there's a large degree of dissatisfaction around, it's not nutrition related, but we have to address it because it's not a like it's not an acknowledged area of health. I think we have to contribute and you don't need to change your job like I did necessarily or go back to uni and put yourself in hex debt, but it could be volunteering. And like one of my, my favorite, favorite clients, he's in his seventies now, he's well and truly retired. And um, I noticed the same thing in him. Like I just noticed that he was really missing contributing. He didn't have children or grandchildren, so he doesn't have a family around him, like a conventional family anyway. Long story short, we worked out through some of our conversations that he had a real soft spot for the homeless. Hmm. And so together we um, put together a bit of a plan to get him to start to donate some time and communicate with people who were currently homeless and God, the, the transformation in him was so powerful and just the stories that he shares about what he's doing to, you know, talk to these people and um, maybe even like, you know, get them jobs and help them make money. And, and this is just incredible stories and how it's really improved his life mm-hmm. was a real reminder for me going back to, say, 2018, 2019 and how I think that we just need to have that real purpose that allows us to be less self-focused because I think otherwise we just become so self-focused that it's really self-centered and we just have way too much time to think about things that perhaps are pretty minor in the big scheme of things. Yeah, I'm reminded as you, you speak about that of the um, the concept of blue zones, you know, those areas of the world where people have, you know, higher percentages of uh, centenarians and people who live a long life and how, you know, a lot of the focus is on the nutrition in those sorts of areas and exercise, et cetera, but a huge aspect of, you know, what they found psychologically with these populations is that sense of purpose and that, that sense of community, yeah. of contributing back to the community and that particularly the elderly, still have a part to play in in the day-to-day lives. Whereas, you know, I think in our culture that we've lost a sort of shared sense of purpose because we have a, a very mixed kind of um, demographic. We don't, you know, we don't all have the same sort of religion or anything anymore. And, you know, our elderly, by and large, you know, are, are sort of sent off to homes and stuff. They're not kind of valued. Um, so, yeah, it just it got me thinking then about how integral and important purpose is. So thanks for sharing that story. Yeah, and that I love blue zones, and it really annoys when we, annoys me when people try and say it's just because they're plant based. Like I'm mm. all for veggies, don't get me wrong, but please do not try and sell your vegan program off the blue zones. Like it's really actually quite little to do with nutrition. It's way bigger than that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs>
Yes, I think if I was living in a, you know, a um, quiet little Mediterranean village, I'd be a lot healthier regardless of Catching what I'd be eating. Catching your own fish yeah. and, you know, growing your own veggies and there's no clock. There's probably very little concept of time. There's sugar and alcohol though, Jad, so, you know, it's not oh, about perfection. <laughs> I am there. I am there. <laughs> hey, you know, there's, it's just another way to source resveratrol, so that's fine. <laughs> I know, right? All, Heart healthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all good. It's all good. Steph, you're talking about a shift. You you kind of want to put yourself or intentionally move into the solution column rather than the problem column, yeah? Mm. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of that exactly but doing the work to work out what that is because for a lot of people when you ask them that question, they they can't answer it, right? Whereas I had gone through enough of a personal experience for it to be clear what that was for me. So that's probably a bit more unique, truthfully, and I definitely acknowledge that. But allocating the time to, to look at your life and um, I don't know if, you know, if there's an example that our listeners can think of where they really feel like alive or, you know, it um, lights up your soul. Like there's got to be examples that we can all look at to think about where we could allocate more of our time to. I agree with you. I think it's taking the time to work out, to manufacture that space, to be considerate of, of your needs and your values. And, you know, I'm going to use the word again, perhaps creating a process map to sort of step towards, to move away from where you are, to move to what you want to do. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting thing. Steph, I'm curious, as always, you mentioned it just before, and I guess my question is, if you had to sort of put down one skill set, because that's what this podcast is about also, it's like what, what skill sets do people use that others might find interesting, into gaining that insight. So probably one skill set for gaining the insight and then another skill set for making the shift. Because... Knowing that you want to do something is one thing, and that's a skill unto itself, but then sort of actualizing that is another. So I'm just curious if, if I put you on the spot and asked you for one skill set that might be useful in recognizing, and then another skill set in transitioning or moving to your happy place. Well, it's probably it might sound a little bit um, common, but I think journaling is really important. Because how, like, if we don't make the time to sit down and try and work out what's in our head, I don't know that we really do make the time ever because otherwise we're busy doing things right. So in meditation, as a general rule, you're trained away from following the thoughts in most styles of meditation. So that's like a stillness practice, which I think is incredible. However, if you're journaling or you're spending time analyzing those thoughts, so that could be, all right, well, what's missing from my life or when did I last feel lit up or alive? And then I think we can perhaps find our own insights into um, that missing piece of the puzzle for many of us. And that's been on my list of balls to pick up, I must admit. So (laughs) I will pick up that journaling ball myself. I was doing a lot of that. Um, at the similar time to when I sort of really kicked off that um, more committed meditation journey. And um, it's a ball that's currently sitting on the floor. So that's my (laughs) next goal. (laughs) But um, in terms of like the next steps, I actually think it's just about trying new things 
Because you don't know unless you give it a try. Like, so if it's not the selling nutrition or working with the homeless, well, you're going to have to work out what that is, right? But it could be a matter of just um, once you've done some journaling, just trying a few things. Gosh, start with the homeless. Use that idea. But it could be, you know, looking at what's happening to our older community. I mean, there's a lot to be said for that, especially off the back of the pandemic, There's many examples. It could be an animal shelter. It could be anything that you're really passionate about. But just don't expect to find the answer straight away. I think just put yourself out there and keep working on, um, you know, keep working on filling up your cup via contribution. I love that. Take note, those playing at home. There's some good, uh, good strategies there. I don't know about you, Jad, but I'm hearing some embedded, compassionate, themes and compassionate choices there it's love it's very lovely and very reinforcing if that's the word reinforcing to hear it's like thank you dr russ harris (laughs) (laughs) it's um i think it's interesting though that because we don't often explore how how we are kind to ourselves or how we are more compassionate towards ourselves and and that's what we're hoping with these discussions on this show is to explore how people do that either formally through those sorts of practices or just um, incidentally in the way they've responded to difficulties in their life. I'm just curious, just as a, as a question that's popped into my head now, how are you guys being kind to yourself this week? Meditating. <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. What about you, Mark? Mine, mine would be very similar. You mentioned before the incense and the candles. I've got a spot in the house and that is my, that's my time. Definitely something like that. I've got two kids. We've just brought our second dog into the house. It feels a little bit like somewhere between some days it's Iraq, the other days it's Flinders Street, you know. I love it all, but for me, you know, sometimes a gift is just going into that room and sitting silently. And I do do it, Steph, later on in the evening, and I find I just, you know, I turn off the script writer and it just makes me float off slumbery, warm, much more readily. So so that's me. What about you, Jaddles? Oh, I was thinking today I I just – I. I've been pretty frazzled lately, as you know, Mike, and um, I I decided to just go for a run, but just like a really slow, easy, just – take in the forest, sunlight on my skin, notice my breath as I was doing it. And it was just, it was so kind of joyous and just a great way to connect back into the present moment. But also I allowed my body to sort of burn off some of that nervous tension that is just like careering through my veins at the moment. And it just, it felt so good. And I was like, yeah, it was a good question to explore, you know, how we all can attempt to do that a bit more in our day-to-day lives. It's a wonderful question, Dad. A lot of this conversation has been about sort of interrogating things that have been normalised. And you know my passion for, Jad, you know, interrogating absurdities, having having a safe discussion to say, it's pretty weird walking around with a rancid internal dialogue, isn't it? Couldn't we talk about it? Um, yeah, you know, um, it's, a, it's a really interesting question. And I guess I would invite our listeners to maybe stop every so often and ask yourself that question. It might feel strange initially, but it's a lovely gift that you would readily offer a friend. Why not bring yourself into that circle? 
I think it's the curiosity angle, though. A number of times you've said, Mike, I'm curious and you've asked a question or what have you. And I think it's we can apply the same thing to ourselves. Like, I'm curious, why do I have these thoughts? Or I'm curious, why do I have a rancid internal dialogue? And, um, yeah, looking, looking at that more closely. It's interesting that it's been said, I can't remember which um, thinker or philosopher said it, but it's been said before that curiosity could be viewed as the doorway to compassion. Oh, write that one down. You know, if you can't necessarily make the big jump all the way into compassion, why not start being curious? It's an interesting thing to do. I always think, Jad, here's my popular culture reference. Uh, When I teach a lot of people about mindfulness, I use the the analogy of Star Trek, we've, we've got our Spock and we've got our Kirk. And most of the time we're Kirk, we're reactive, we're emotional, we're jumping all over the place. And it's interesting, if you go back and you look, a lot of the dialogue that Spock will lead with is interesting, fascinating, curious. And so, yeah, the invitation is let's, let's, un- let's unlock our inner, inner Spock. Um, and those people that are listening that are under, I don't know, 20, you can Google that. You can Google that. <laughs> I hate to admit that I'm just not a Star Trek kind of person, but all I'm thinking about is how many times did you watch Star Trek until you noticed that? Because surely the first couple of times that just went straight over your head, right? Totally. Like um, I I was just, I'm a geek, like an absolute <laughs> geek for all that sort of stuff. And it's interesting in my years Science fiction used to be a modality that I would escape reality, but I found that a lot of the star, a lot of the sci-fi that I was very drawn to, such as the original Star Trek, was actually all about societal commentary. Um, mm. So these days, I look back at it more as sort of saying, "Oh, well, what what ideas can I bring back into um, my life?" So. It's been an offshoot, also, Steph, of of a, of a very long mindfulness practice of just just having a go and interrogating absurdities, you know, and trying to do that in a kind way. Um, And that's my justification for watching lots of science fiction, everyone. (laughs) When you watch Star Trek for the 17th time and (laughs) you ask, what are you doing? Like, I'm interrogating, you know, my thoughts. (laughs) Yeah, when the wife walks in and I've got Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back on for the 50th time, it's like, I'm doing important (laughs) stuff. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> research we i like a brene brown quote more than most people and she has a concept like fact check that brene so my friends and i when we start getting carried away with like total stories that we've just made up completely run away with we're like whoa 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 let's fact check that brene and i love that because you're like none of that's true like yeah. i just made that up like i love doing that because it's actually quite comical when someone catches you and then you start to do that to yourself as a as a way of practice well in some ways that's what john cabot zinn's model of mindfulness and and obviously many of the wisdom traditions that came before it are asking us to do. When you walk down the street with a rancid internal dialogue, you need to pause and go, hang on, let's fact check that, Brene. You know, I don't suck or my one used to be, oh, everyone else is doing so much better than you. It's like, well, just let's fact check that. Oh, God. 
Yeah. That's another interesting one to use. But yeah, that's often what I've found most beneficial about mindfulness practice. You know, my brain secretes thoughts just like other organs in the body have a role. <laughs> that's just what this thing does. It secretes thoughts, but we need to fact check 90% of them <laughs> and I'll have a better well, I day. Think, I think, I hope everybody is going to start to do that. <laughs> it's, it can make for a different day. Yeah. They're not true. But even that, I mean, that simple, that simple idea, I remember when I first started learning this and, and the teacher was like, you walk around thinking everything that you think is truth. It's like, Jesus, oh, well, thank you for blowing the back of my skull out. Like, I just really <laughs> didn't think of that. But it's a big thing. We can just chill out, man. Like, the stuff that you're saying to yourself, it's not always true. <laughs> Love it. That's so good. Uh, speaking of kindness, I'm conscious of the, the time of day and, and the long hours you've probably put in um, today, Steph, with your practice. Is there anything else you perhaps wanted to um, share, any um, upcoming events or anything you wanted to talk about or anything else you wanted to add, I guess, to the discussion this evening? Yeah, thank you. I'd just like to direct everyone to... Um Stay connected via my online home, which is The Natural Nutritionist. Um, certainly if you like the um, the non-highlight reel side to social media, come and hang out on Instagram at The Natural Nutritionist. I love that. And, yeah, I just hope that everyone found it quite insightful. Um, I've loved this conversation. It is quite late at night and I'm sitting here in the dark with a little bit of a lamp on because it's, you know, nearly bedtime. <laughs> but I've really enjoyed catching up with you guys. So thanks for having me on the show today. Oh, Steph, it's been a pleasure. And look, I have been accused of being foolish in my lifetime, but I will not be so foolish as to keep a pregnant woman up late. So thank, <laughs> thank you so much for, you know, what, what has been, you know, really lovely, organic, candid discussion. Thank you. Thanks, Steph.